Hey, what's up, everybody? <clears throat> Welcome to the Gray Zone. We're live, and I really, really appreciate everyone berating me exclusively for us being late. I guess you somehow know that I'm the late one or something. We're also live on Rockfin, for what that's worth. Um, how do you know that I'm? It's my fault. I mean, why is everyone mad at me? Anyway. <laughs> Welcome, Aaron. How's it going, Max? How's it going, everybody? Journalist Aaron Mate is here with me today on February 10th. This is our Saturday makeup stream. It's um, good Shabbos, Aaron. I guess good. we're not observing, or the, the Shabbos Goy is behind the scenes on the boards, on the ones and twos. You know, wouldn't this be the time when actually it would be kosher for us to? be using electronics it's after sundown so maybe we're maybe we're good well uh i don't think so yeah okay but uh you know if we do need a good shabbos goy i, I can't afford hakeem jeffries or eric adams um, <laughs> so yeah i'm gonna have to go maybe i have to go to home depot to the parking lot to get one i just you know can't do what Seth Clariman and Haim Saban and the top um, Biden donors do. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, the Putin-Tucker interview. We're going to talk about the Gaza cost, the ongoing Gaza cost, and when it will end, and the continuing blowback from the overall Biden Middle East policy. I don't know if there's anything else you think we're going to cover today. No, I think that's a. I mean, we're going to also cover uh, the latest in the New York Times scam Hamas sexual violence story, where there was just this. Oh event right, right. At Columbia University, featuring Hillary Clinton and Linda Thomas Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the UN, and the author, the discredited New York Times journalist Jeffrey Gettleman, who dug himself a new hole uh, in his attempts to defend his discredited piece about. Um, alleged uh, systemic rape on October 7th. So we'll definitely be covering that today. And uh, we're not going to be doing this. I'm just not in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm high or something. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fatigued, you know, but I'm not high. I don't, I'm not, I'm just, it's never 420 o'clock in my world. <laughs> anyway, we're just getting going. I'm getting warmed up. Um, I think we should cover the Tucker Putin interview first, um, since it's what you know everyone's talking about. I had, um, you know, I actually I watched it in clips and I read the transcript, and I thought I really recommend everyone read the transcript. I think that's the best way to absorb the interview because you might actually have to watch it several times, especially the first thirty minutes. But um, Aaron, what what were your initial thoughts and takeaways from the Tucker Carlson, Vladimir Putin interview, which we have been told not to watch by Hillary <laughs> and John Kirby too? You also said the same. Thing. Oh, I missed that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I would recommend people skip the first twenty five minutes. Putin went on this long history rant about uh, Russia and Ukraine, and I think he could have summarized that in one minute, just saying that there's a deep historical Russian tie to Ukraine. And that's why it's very important for us. 
I don't think he needed to go into the 25 minutes of detail that he did. He lost a lot of people, including Tucker Carlson. Maybe he doesn't care. Obviously, he doesn't care, and that's that's his right. But uh, it's also, um, I just think there are more important issues than like what was going on between Ukraine and Russia in the ninth century or or whatever it was. Uh, but um, aside from that, I. Uh, Look, I thought it was a positive event. The fact that uh, it's such a rare occasion and it's deemed to be controversial that an American journalist would speak to the leader of Russia, the uh, like the world's other top nuclear power who we're currently locked in a proxy war with. It's long overdue. And it broke the sound barrier of so many topics that we're not allowed to discuss in the U.S. media. Uh, all the grievances that Russia had uh, that led to it invading in February 2022. Um the U.S. tearing up arms control treaties and building up missile systems around Russia. The U.S. joining with Ukraine's ultranationalists and blocking the Minsk Accords. Uh, the uh, U.S. refusing to take seriously Russia's demands before the invasion and, and negotiate on the uh, expansion of NATO and the surrounding of Russia by NATO military infrastructure. And then the U.S. blocking peace deals after the Russian invasion, uh, famously blocking the peace deal that was almost reached in Istanbul in April 2022. And Putin talked about that extensively. All topics that are off limits in U.S. media. The only topic you can acknowledge across the spectrum in U.S. media, whether it's like corporate media or progressive media, is you can talk about NATO expansion. And the reason yeah. why you can talk about NATO expansion is because some State Department officials have also previously talked about NATO expansion. So because we live in a kind of a Soviet-style system, the people in power set the terms of debate, and we're only allowed to go as far as they allow. So because people like, uh, you know, George Keenan and William Burns have raised concerns about NATO expansion before, that we can talk about. Everything else is off limits. And Tucker and Putin broke that sound barrier. And I thought that was uh, a really important accomplishment in itself. And it explains why all these corporate journalists were freaking out, because they don't want people to hear discussions of issues that they've censored and distorted. Yeah, I, t I tend to agree. Um, I was also happy to see this happen. I wanted to see it happen because anyone who believes in, in peace needs to have this happen. And the emphasis needs to be on the sabotage of negotiations. And I think the overall takeaway is the opposite of the takeaway that the US media wants us to have, which is that Putin truly laments being shut out of the West and having negotiations continually sabotaged and that he ultimately wants a negotiated settlement and has wanted it. That was sort of the message he wanted to get across, but you obviously won't get that message unless you just simply watch the raw interview with an open mind. I think it was important, uh, although maybe not necessary, to have the first 30 minutes put forward. And Aaron, you interviewed and actually read the book and now it's not coming to my, to my mind uh an, an, an academic author of a book about sort of the invention of ukrainian nationalism for pushback i don't recall this interview uh you sure it was me i don't know i don't know anyway and uh <laughs> on the invention of ukrainian nationalism uh well, anyway i'll have to look it up yeah putin is consistent i mean first of all okay there's a, there is a there was a reason why Putin went on, I think, for 30 minutes, calling up dates, specific dates, and rulers' names, 
going back to the ninth century all the way through the 18th century with the birth of Novorossiya after it was sort of imposed on the Zaporozhian Sikh where the sort of um, what, 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 what was sort of the forerunner or precursor of current Ukrainian nationalism attempted to carve out space in this area called Ukraine, which simply means the borderlands. Um, what he was doing there first was showing off his intellectual acumen and the fact that he is actually a sentient being on the same day that our president had to give a press conference declaring that he was still uh, compass mentis and was still capable of functioning and still had a memory because of a special counsel investigation, which declared that Biden was such a doddering old man that he could actually not be held responsible for covering up documents relating to the corruption of his son, Hunter Biden. I, I think that was deliberate. And even if it wasn't deliberate, it was like an inadvertent score or win for Putin because many Americans saw that this was a leader who is at least able to articulate his country's history and national interests, even if we reject it as propaganda. Yes, but he also, he was asked a direct question by Tucker Carlson, like, why did you invade Ukraine? And what threats were you feeling? And uh, were you uh, under at that time? And rather than give a direct answer, he goes into this 25 minute history of like Russia and Ukraine. And I just think it went over for an American audience. I think it will, that will go over a lot of people's heads, no matter yeah. whether he's right or wrong on, on the history. Um, but you certainly, I agree. The, the contrast between him and Biden. Um, I mean, imagine Biden sitting for like a two hour interview with a Russian journalist or, or with any journalist asking him, you know, minimally uh, critical questions. It, it, it couldn't happen. There's just absolutely no way. Um, he, he doesn't, he even skipped Biden's even not doing a Super Bowl interview this year, which is like a layup interview for every, every president does a Super Bowl interview. Biden's not even doing it, even though it's not even with, they can't even say it's like, it's it's not even with Fox News this year because I think uh, CBS has the Super Bowl. So it'd be with a friendly network, but he can't even subject himself to that. So yes, I agree there that the contrast is 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 striking. Well, I recommend that, yes, I and, and I think he, he could have communicated to Americans that, as David Stockman put it, I think David Stockman wrote some of the best takedowns of contemporary Ukrainian nationalism in a two-part series. You can find it at antiwar.com. Um, I'll throw up a map from that. Those editorials are th those those pieces in a second. This is a former economic advisor to Reagan, um, and he's sort of a, you know, paleocon. The piece is called "Maps Not to Die For," and it's how Ukraine has always been contested, how it has changed hands repeatedly. There have been nationalist movements, uh, specifically coming out of the Galician tradition, the Carpathian tradition that have tried to carve out space from Novorossiya. And then after the birth of the Soviet Union in the 1920s, Lenin started to provide Ukraine with autonomy and Putin consistently, he said it in 2021, he said it in 2022 in his speech announcing the quote unquote special military operation. Why did Lenin give parts of what were Novorossiya over to what is modern day Ukraine and then and Khrushchev after him. It makes no sense. And from the American point of view, what we or our government is doing, fighting on behalf of Ukraine is actually intervening 
in a civil conflict in a country that really doesn't have a national narrative is not a stable country. It's a country, it's, it would be, you could maybe, uh, um, uh, maybe say it's analogous to Reagan's intervention in Lebanon in the 1980s. Um, that is divided along um, sort of national and sectarian lines. And here's, here's a map that I think really illustrates the problem that I think Putin was trying to get to in his 30-minute filibuster, which uh, befuddled Tucker Carlson. This is a map showing the results of the Ukrainian presidential election in February 2010. Okay, so you see in the red and the pink, that's Yulia, Yulia Timoshenko, a famous uh, paragon of uh, financial ethics and real representative of the Western Ukrainian nationalist tradition. The, you know, she was a supporter of the Maidan coup. And then in the blue, you have votes for Yanukovych, the leader, a fairly elected president who was toppled in the Maidan coup. And you can see this is not a coherent country. Um, and you can't actually liken it to the United States, which has red states and blue states, because while many people in the South may adhere to the lost cause, the fact is the Southern population overall, there is no consensus in favor of another secession. And they would not adhere to a referendum to join another foreign country, as, for example, Crimea did, and I think the majority of the population of Donetsk and Lugansk did. So basically, this cuts to the heart of the problem that Putin was getting at, and this is what we're doing. We're fighting on, on behalf of the Reds against the Blues. So we're actually, Americans don't understand this. They're not actually fighting for you all of Ukraine or Ukrainian sovereignty. They're fighting for one group of Ukrainians against another group, against the country that first intervened uh, in a kind of responsibility to protect mission because they were getting slaughtered and bombed from 2014 on. Well, fair enough. I'm, I'm just saying he could have made that point in three minutes rather than 25 yeah. minutes, uh, you know. Uh, I think it's a fair point. And the point he's made before, uh, he said this in his speech, uh, recognizing uh, his annexation of Crimea, that, you know, that the guarantee that he respects Ukrainian sovereignty. But he's does. He said it comes with conditions. The condition is you have to respect the rights of the Russian speaking peoples inside your country. And if you don't, you're going to have a problem. He threatened that back in 2014 after the Maidan coup and after he took Crimea. Um, and and that's because of the historical uh, result of Ukraine being the product of you know a, a series of different territories being all thrown together, which left a lot of ethnic Russians inside Ukrainian territory. And uh, I think it's a you know that's a core Russian argument, and Americans should hear it. And Americans should hear it, especially because, as you say, the U.S. took the decided to basically take the side of those who want to erase the Russian component from their country. Um, but I just think all that could have been done <laughs> in a lot shorter time. But regardless, um, you know, talking about what struck me too in 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 talking about his dealings with U.S. leaders, whether it's George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or Donald Trump, Barack Obama actually I don't, I don't think he even mentioned, which says to me he doesn't have even much regard for Obama. But like the through line in his uh, accounts of dealing with all these presidents is that they're not really in charge that they would tell him one thing, like Clinton would say, yeah, like, let's talk about you coming into NATO. And then Clinton would come back and say, you know what? I talked to my team. We're not gonna be able to do that. 
or you know same thing happened with reagan and gorbachev reagan and gorbachev basically agreed to eliminate nuclear weapons like reagan was receptive personally very receptive to that idea but then he went and met with his team who told him no way you can't do that and he came back and told Gorbachev, sorry, can't do that. And same with Trump and Bush. Putin said, I had a good relationship with both of them. But he said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we get along or not personally. What matters is the structure of your country and the way it's organized. And the theme is basically that the people who are elected to be president don't really have the power. It's this established national security state bureaucracy that really makes all the decisions. And there's plenty of historical evidence for that. And I, it was just interesting to hear you know, Putin give his personal account of uh, of his dealings with that. Yeah, Putin has previously said that it really doesn't matter who gets elected in the United States. There's a sort of permanent foreign policy bureaucracy, and that's who he ultimately has to deal with. Um, so he's not actually sitting down to negotiate, although he gave it a shot. With Trump, uh, this was, uh, thank you, Adam. Yeah, I was thinking of Aaron's interview with Nikolai Petro. Oh, uh, okay. Yes. Of Ukrainian nationalism. Yes. Yeah, who's written, by the way, a great book called The Tragedy of Ukraine, which is, uh, unfortunately, it's an ac it's an academic book, and they the prices they charge for academic books are insane. So, But hopefully one day it'll become more accessible. It's really essential to understanding uh, Ukraine. And then here's a question that I think relates to a part of the interview. Why didn't Putin invade only eastern Ukraine then? Why'd he go for Kyiv? Why didn't he go for Kiev? And this is relates to the sabotage of negotiations that when Putin went in, the idea was, that's why he called it a special military operation, which has a particular legal classification. He went in with a small force, uh, what, like 80,000. You know, there wasn't a mass call up and he thought it would shake the Ukrainian state to its core. He went into the Kiev Oblast without actually intending to go into the city, which would have been a bloodbath, especially, and it was bad enough inside the Kiev Oblast, outside the city for the Russian forces. Uh, but the point was to force a negotiation. Which was successful initially. And Zelensky declared some intention of negotiating, or at least people yep. around him were moving towards it until Boris Johnson parachuted in, so to speak, in April 2022. And said no way and we're also going to make you famous and give you tons of weapons and you're going to win which is yeah and, and actually putin repeated a claim he's made before but maybe people hadn't heard it where he said that as they were negotiating in turkey he got a call from france and germany who said listen um you know we support these negotiations but how is ukraine going to really negotiate at the barrel of a gun and so putin said okay and he claims that based on that request and the request from the ukrainians he withdrew his forces from around Kyiv as a show of goodwill, uh, which was claimed at the time by Russian officials, but it was overlooked. Now, the narrative here is that Putin did not do that as a goodwill gesture. He just did that because Russian forces were getting their asses kicked. Uh, so that's why he had to withdraw anyway. But the timing of that withdrawal did happen to occur right as these negotiations were getting somewhere inside of Istanbul. So I think what Putin says is actually quite plausible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I didn't know though, I hadn't heard before that actually France and Germany were involved in making that request. I, I know that Ukrainian officials had asked for that, uh, but I didn't know that France and Germany were involved in that too. And that's what he said in his interview. Uh, and then, so as soon as he does that, he does withdraw Russian forces from Kyiv, and he goes on to say what happened next, which is that 
that's when Boris Johnson showed up in Kiev, told Zelensky that the key thing that Ukraine is asking for to make a peace deal with Russia from the West was security guarantees. And Russia had accepted that. So Ukraine was going to accept neutrality, accept limits on its armed forces, and in return, Russia would withdraw to its pre-invasion lines. And also, the West would give Ukraine security guarantees. But Boris Johnson delivered a message that, no, we're not going to give you these security guarantees. and You should keep fighting Russia. And what we'll do instead of security guarantees is give you tens of billions of dollars in weaponry, which is exactly what happened next. Weeks later, the U.S. put in motion a huge influx of NATO weaponry. Other NATO states followed suit, and the negotiations were crushed. And so, you know, Putin, after seeing that happen, he withdraws his forces, assuming he's being truthful here. Again, I, I can't vouch for it for sure, but assuming he's being truthful that they withdrew their forces back as a gesture of goodwill towards reaching an agreement, he in, instead sees Ukraine walk away from it and get flooded with NATO weaponry. This makes the possibility of future ne- uh, negotiations really unlikely based on that experience alone. And then you had simultaneously German officials uh, like Angela Merkel, the former French president, Francois Hollande, Petro Poroshenko, the former Ukrainian president, all of them came out and said pretty much around the same time that, oh yeah, the Minsk Accords, like which are the peace accords we had reached to end the war in the Donbass before, like well before February 2022, back in February 2015. Yeah, all that was kind of a ruse. Like we just did that so we could buy ourselves time to build up the Ukrainian army. So this, this is who Putin's dealing with. So let me ask you a, another question about another section relating to Istanbul and the negotiations. <clears throat> this has come up in our comments as well. Um, I'll, 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 it's going to save time, I think, if I throw up a transcript instead of video. Um, so basically, at this point, uh, Putin brings up Yaroslav. He brings up basically uh, the member of the Galicia SS brigade, Ukrainian, not neo, the, the Nazi collaborating Galicia SS brigade, who was honored in Canada's parliament late last year. And now we know that Justin Trudeau, Yaroslav Hunka, and now we know that Justin Trudeau actually um, invited him to a, a rally alongside Vladimir Zelensky in the Canadian parliament. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, he brings up the problem of neo-Nazism in Ukraine. And Tucker says, really, my question is, what do you do about it? I mean, Hitler's been dead for 80 years. Nazi Germany no longer exists. And so true. And so I think what you're saying is you want to extinguish or at least control Ukrainian nationalism. But how? How do you do that? And Putin says, your question is subtle. And I can tell, I can tell you what I think. Don't take offense. And so he says, you know, you say Hitler's been dead, but his example lives on. And he points to the ultranationalist elements, Azov and so on, within the Ukrainian polity uh, who want to exterminate Russians, Poles, Jews, who are followers of Stepan Bandera. Um, presumably this would include uh, Valery Zeluzhny, who recently posed for another photo in front of a poster of Stepan Bandera, the late Nazi collaborator, who's sort of the godfather of contemporary Ukrainian anti-Russian nationalism. And Tucker's saying, no, I'm asking you a practical question. You don't control all of Ukraine. I don't think you want to. So how do you eliminate an ideology or feelings of a view of history that in a country you don't control, which is a good question. 
and Putin says, you know, it actually was on the table that we had it in writing that neo-Nazism would not be cultivated in Ukraine, that it would be prohibited at the legislative level. Uh, this was discussed in Istanbul. So pre presumably this means that he's saying that those agreements that were on the table in the early spring in 2022 would have banned Azov and all of the ultra-right parties like the Social National Party and, and their uh, various successors. Right sector. Yeah. Yeah. Right sector, et cetera. They would have all been Voter, illegalized yeah. in Ukraine. And yeah. Boris Johnson came in and said, no, you can't do that. Uh, we need them. Um, I don't know if you know anything about this, but this is the first time I've heard that. Yeah, it's the first time I've heard of it too. And so that's why I think I'd like to see Putin release some evidence for that because other people dispute that account. So for example, the head of Ukraine's delegation, um, who's a close friend of Zelensky's, he's a member of parliament, uh, David Arakamia. Um, he, uh, he gave an interview a few months ago, and we've talked about this, where he basically admitted uh, that uh, they agreed to a deal where the main thing was neutrality, where Russia's main demand was about Ukraine's neutrality, not joining NATO. And he confirmed that Boris Johnson came over and told Ukraine that we're not going to back you up on this if you sign this. But he said he said that denazification was not a big issue for Russia. So um, now, of course, David Arakamia serves in a government where neo-Nazis have a big influence uh, and play a... Um, uh, a role of intimidating people very easily, uh, as we've seen many examples of, including the heads of these groups threatening Zelensky's life if he makes peace with the rebels in the East. So I don't know who's right there, but I, I'd like to see Putin release some evidence for what he said, because he claims that he has the documents that the Ukrainian government initialed in Istanbul. So let's see them. Let's see him actually release that his version of the Istanbul communique. Yeah, I would have liked to have heard a lot more new details um, but I think it would be unfair if we didn't go to uh, Boris Johnson, <laughs> former British PM, for uh, for comment on this interview. Around the world, people watching that ludicrous interview with Vladimir Putin conducted by Tucker Carlson. And we must not fall for this tissue of lies above all the notion that Putin is somehow fated to succeed in Ukraine. On the contrary, he is doomed to fail. Read about it in the Daily Mail. <laughs> oh, very stately and convincing. Yeah. He's, um, he's never directly denied the claim that he helped sabotage a peace deal. He, what he said was that Ukraine didn't need my convincing to know that they should fight Russia. That's, that's pretty much what his defense is, that it didn't take me to tell Ukraine because they know what to do. Well, actually, Ukraine had specifically asked for security guarantees. They said repeatedly, like, for this whole deal thing to work, we need security guarantees from the West, uh, which, if the U.S. is committed to Ukraine security, as they claim, would have been very easy to promise, right? It's not that far from granting NATO membership. It's just done on a you know direct bilateral level rather than as part of a military alliance. But they refused. And the, and the Biden administration communicated this, too. If you go back to that period, they were putting out these signals that they were 
not very uh, receptive to this idea of a security guarantee. It wouldn't really be feasible. That was a clear sign that they were not going to let this peace deal go through because it would interfere with their real goal, which was using Ukraine for a proxy war to bleed Russia. Yeah. And Boris Johnson doesn't deny it at all there. No. Says, Read the Daily Mail. How about reading The Economist? The Economist, not exactly a uh, you know gray zone affiliate, declared that the war is basically over. It's all lost for Ukraine. I mean, they're just recycling U.S. aid through Ukraine to pay weapons contractors. It's not really... They're, they're allowing soldiers to serve in the Ukrainian military now who have Down syndrome, who suffer from dwarfism, and uh, no shortage of women. And I'm not saying that women should not be allowed to serve in the military. I'm not making an argument about that. It just shows there's a lack of male bodies. So I don't know what Boris Johnson is talking about, but that was a pretty pathetic response. Uh, <laughs> anyway... I would like to see him grilled about that by Western interviewers, but we're not going to be seeing that, are we? No, no one asks about this. Never. No, never. Um, never. Let's cover I mean, it. Oh, go ahead. At least in the UK, they did cover that part of Putin's interview. Like that actually made some news. Like, uh, you know, the big morning show, Good Morning Britain, they covered it. They got a comment from Boris Johnson. Here in the US, it gets totally ignored. So if you read the New York Times talking about uh, Putin's call for negotiations and him accusing the US of, blocking diplomacy, they still cannot bring themselves to even mention Putin's allegation that these peace uh, talks were sabotaged by the U.S. That They can't even acknowledge the allegation, let alone also acknowledging all the other people who have corroborated it who aren't from Russia, Ukrainian officials, including that top negotiator who I mentioned. Uh, another Ukrainian diplomat, we played the clip, recently said that Putin, quote, did everything possible to make peace. The former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, he said that the West blocked a peace deal. Turkey's foreign minister also said it too. Uh, anonymous U.S. officials have confirmed that there was a deal reached in the, in, that was in foreign affairs. But aside from that, that's the only even nod to that peace deal that's appeared in corporate U.S. media. Yeah. Uh, it seems inconceivable to them that Putin would have gone in for any reason other than to reconstitute the Soviet Union. I mean, that's the kind of propaganda we get. And that if he's yeah. not stopped there, he's just going to keep going west. Um, here's another, I think we could we could watch this section where Putin addresses Nord Stream. And uh, I'll play it at advanced speed just so we can get through it. Nord Stream. <laughs> you for sure. I was busy that day. <laughs> Nate, it, do you have... Do you have uh, I did not blow up Nord Stream. Thank you, though. You personally may have an alibi, but the CIA has no such alibi. Do, do you have evidence that NATO or the CIA did it? You know, I won't get into details, but people always say in such cases, look for someone who is interested. But in this case, we should not only look for someone who is interested, but also for someone who has capabilities. Because there may be many people interested, but not all of them are capable of sinking to the bottom of the Baltic Sea and carrying out this explosion. These two components should be connected. Who is interested and who is capable of doing it? But I'm confused. I mean, that's the biggest act of industrial terrorism ever. And it's the largest emission of CO2 in, in history. Okay, so if you had evidence, and presumably given your security services, rental services, you would, that NATO, the US, CIA, the West did this, why wouldn't you present it and win a propaganda victory? <laughs> In the war of propaganda, it is very difficult to defeat the United States because the United States controls all the world's media and many European media. 
the ultimate beneficiary of the biggest European media are American financial institutions. Don't you know that? So it is possible to get involved in this work, but it is cost prohibitive, so to speak. We can simply shine the spotlight on our sources of information and we will not achieve results. It is clear to the whole world what happened and even American analysts talk about it directly. It's true. Yes, I, but, but here's a question you may be able to answer. You worked in Germany, famously. Um, the Germans clearly know that their NATO partner did this, but they, and it damaged their economy greatly. It may never recover. Why are they being silent about it? That's very confusing to me. Why wouldn't the Germans say something about it? <laughs> this also confuses me. But today's German leadership is guided by the interests of the collective West rather than its national interests. Otherwise, it is difficult to explain the logic of their action or inaction. So, uh, Aaron, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that exchange. I, I, I actually would have liked to have heard more detail from Putin about the Russian perspective on Nord Stream, since he was able to offer so much historical detail, for example, on the conflict with Ukraine. Yeah. Well, luckily, I mean, U.S. officials have, have explained... Uh, what's really behind Nord Stream is there's been this long-standing effort to make sure that Russia and Germany don't have any ties because it's understood that together they pose a threat to U.S. hegemony, control of of, of Europe. Uh, and uh, but yeah, Putin didn't really go into that, which is surprising because I, I know he knows that. And uh, I guess it was interesting when Tucker asked him, you know, like why haven't you made your evidence public? He says it wouldn't be worth it. Uh, because it would re reveal our sources and methods and we wouldn't gain much from it because the global media is so much in the pocket of the U.S. And I think <laughs> I think he's right. Definitely. Um, I th just wish he had addressed at least something from a Russian investigation. I know the Russians have attempted to send sea craft to the site of the blasts. Um, I've heard the Americans have as well. And it looks like the Swedish investigation has been closed without any finding. Yeah. Uh, which is short, nothing short of scandalous. Yeah. I'm going to be talking to Eric Anderson soon, who led the first independent expedition to the Nord Stream blast sites. And we uh, participated in that at the gray zone and covered it. Um, and uh, we're going to talk to Eric about what appears to be this gigantic cover up. So I think that section could have been stronger and you could see tucker trying to extract more out of putin and the, and, the, and and the same thing about maidan where putin references um well let, let me let me play this uh take i think it's a better take than mine or at least he got to it first and it it's from our friend uh afshin ratanzi uh who is the host of going underground one of the best interview shows around um, and here's his his perspective. Oh, why did he not? Uh, why did he not do a slam dunk? Why did he not mention Gaza, the genocide at the hands of these NATO powers that are arming Israel? Why did he not uh, name secrets that he must have that show uh, even more information than RT viewers? RT, of course, uh, endlessly censored in NATO countries. He must have even more details about Nord Stream. As he did say, it was the CIA backing Seymour Hersh's view. He must have even more details about the Maidan coup. We have the leaked phone call from Victoria Newland, Assistant Secretary of State. Why did he choose not to? That was perhaps why Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State, was uh, wheeled out to uh, start talking the day before the Tucker interview about how no one must ever watch it, no one must believe it, Tucker Carlson is ridiculous because they must have been frightened, and yet Putin chose not to. 
That's much more horrifying. Why did Putin just say negotiations? Let's negotiate. There was nearly a negotiation. I mean, I think that's a that's a great point. <clears throat> that the authors of the Maidan coup, the true authors in Washington, were terrified of what Putin might say about their communications and what actually happened. Oh, we have to go on as the plebes is uh, the leaked or it was obviously hacked phone call of Newland and Jeffrey Piat. But why not provide more details? Or is he holding on to that for leverage? I mean, it always seems like Putin is holding back constantly. Uh, and there was um, a, a, my sense of just the vibe of the interview was Tucker was geared up. He was ready for some some explosive takeaways and Putin was completely relaxed and at the same time deeply cautious of Tucker. Uh, and he actually addressed Tucker as a CIA wannabe at one point, <laughs> referring to how Tucker uh, tried to intern for the CIA when he was like in college. Yeah, that was funny. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think Putin cares about reaching a Western audience. I just don't think he cares. I don't think he uh, sees yeah. much of a point at, at this point. Um, he doesn't strike me as a big believer in democracy. So it's not like he has this like faith that if just the truth gets out, then the people will compel their leaders to go in a better course, which, you know, I have to say is grounded in a lot of fact. So I, I can't fault. I really can't really fault him for that. And uh, he um, I don't I don't still think he cares about reaching a Western audience. And he did talk about Maidan being a CIA backed coup. Um, he went over a bit of the history. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I. I don't know what he wanted to get out of this interview, um, but calling for negotiations and the contrast between him calling for negotiations and the Biden administration refusing, I think that's an important contrast that I'm sure at least that was one of his goals, just to underscore that you know his government says they're open for negotiations while the Biden administration does not. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the, the most important takeaway from the interview. Um, here's another, I think the last significant part I want to show um, before I think we address the reaction, which is when uh, Tucker and Putin kind of joust on China. And this is like the most contentious comes part. next. And maybe you trade one colonial power for another much less sentimental and forgiving colonial power. I mean, or is the, the BRICS, for example, in danger of being completely dominated by the Chinese, the Chinese economy uh, in a way that's not good for their sovereignty? Do you worry about that? Well, we have heard those boogeyman stories before. It is a boogeyman story. We're neighbors with China. You cannot choose neighbors just as you cannot choose close relatives. We share a border of thousand kilometers with them. This is number one. Second, we have a centuries-long history of coexistence. We're used to it. Third, China's foreign policy philosophy is not aggressive. Its idea is to always look for compromise, and we can see that. The next point is as follows. We are always told the same boogeyman story, and here it goes again, through an euphemistic form, but it is still the same boogeyman story. The cooperation with China keeps increasing. The pace at which China's cooperation with Europe is growing is higher and greater than that of the growth of Chinese-Russian cooperation. Ask Europeans, aren't they afraid? They might be, I don't know. But they are still trying to access China's market at all costs, especially now that they are facing economic problems. Chinese businesses are also exploring the European market. Do Chinese businesses have small presence in the United States? Yes, the political decisions are such that they are trying to limit their cooperation with China. It is to your own detriment, Mr. Tsapper, that you are limiting cooperation with China. You are hurting yourself. It is a delicate matter, and there are no silver bullet solutions, just as it is with the dollar. So, before introducing any illegitimate sanctions, illegitimate in terms of the Charter of the United Nations, one should think very carefully. For decision makers, this appears to be a problem. 
So I thought that was very well articulated. He's speaking to the Tucker Carlson faction of the Republican Party who are hostile to China, who seem to, who I mean, they openly say it, that, you know, any friendly relationship or detente with Russia should be aimed at yep. separating Russia from China and doing the reverse of what Kissinger and Nixon did, yep. China, uh, and that uh, this isn't going to happen. And Putin's explaining it in terms of the emerging global economy in which the dollar does not enjoy the same hegemony it did during the 1970s. And when China during the early 1970s had not fully industrialized and taken advantage, uh, become the key uh, export sector to the United States and uh, taken advantage of U.S. debt and so on. So, I mean, it's just a, he, he's, he's exposing that perspective, the perspective of the Tucker faction as sort of outdated or fantastical. And at the same time, Tucker is giving him the space and the opportunity to present that to the American public and to his audience, uh, including his audience on X. And I think that was uh, magnanimous and what every interviewer should do. He showed actual respect for the historical and economic position of his interview subject, which you just wouldn't see from another interviewer like Christiane Amanpour, who criticized Tucker for interviewing him. She would just jump down his throat, interrupt, and the American public wouldn't get to hear about that or about Putin explaining how the dollar no longer enjoys hegemony and how foolish it is for the U.S. to sanction so much of the world and force all of the non-aligned nations and any nation that wants to have an independent policy into BRICS and into a more uh, and, and, and away from the dollar. I think that's an incredibly important message for Americans to hear, and they will never hear it in any primetime interviewer interview. They're not going to hear it on Meet the Press. They're not going to hear it on any CNN show. So it, I think um, that's why this interview was so important. You're getting the counter hegemonic and ascendant global perspective from Putin uh, directly uh, through X. And, you know, for all the criticism I have of Elon Musk, you know, credit for him to him for not suppressing it. Yeah, the point about uh, China's foreign policy, too, it just it might not occur to people who are in Tucker's camp that not every country has a foreign policy like the U.S., which is just inherently violent and aggressive and treats allies as expendable and people who can be sold out whenever it's uh, necessary. And, um, you know, and explaining that, you know, like we, we share a massive border with China, so why wouldn't we get along with them? And why and especially... Yeah after U.S. foreign policy of the last 30 years, like U.S. role in destroying Russia's economy after the Soviet Union collapsed and pillaging it and privatizing it, um, and then trying to destroy Russia's economy after the invasion of Ukraine, if not even before. I mean, Russia's been forced to turn to China, and as Putin explains, it's it's working out, uh, at least so far. Yeah. I mean, the Sino-Soviet split was one of the biggest wins for American diplomacy in the last hundred years, other other than World War II, so why would why would Putin or Xi give them that again? Yeah, um, it's not going to happen. So um, the the reaction from the media has been a complete and total meltdown. Um, and Hillary Clinton, well, let's do Hillary first. I mean, Hillary Clinton basically 
ask people not to watch the interview. <laughs> and there's her, as usual, her freak out is suffused with irony. Um, and it, and, and it just crude. The first American, I'll say, journalist uh, to interview Putin since the war in Ukraine mm -hmm. began. What does that tell you about Tucker Carlson and right-wing media and also Vladimir Putin? Well, it shows me what I think we've all known. He's what's called a useful idiot. I mean, if you actually read translations of what's being said on Russian media, they make fun of him. I mean, he's like a puppy dog. You know, he somehow has, after having been fired from so many outlets in the United States, he, uh, I would not be surprised uh, if he emerges with a contract with a Russian outlet because he is a useful idiot. He says things that are not true. He parrots Vladimir Putin's uh, pack of lies about Ukraine. Uh, so I don't see why Putin wouldn't give him an interview because through him, he can, you know, continue to lie about what his, you know, objectives are in Ukraine and, and uh, you know, what he expects to see happen. Um, well, By the way, has MSNBC ever asked Hillary Clinton a single critical question like, in all the dozens of interviews they've done? Like, like what is with these ga Battlestar Galactica commander suits that she keeps wearing <laughs> with these, this weird, like, dominatrix buckle? Like, that's where I'd start. And then I'd ask about the hundreds of thousands of dollars she accepted from Israel lobby groups before she became Secretary of State, as well as the Clinton Foundation accepting millions and millions of dollars from the Gulf states and the same countries that were trying to destabilize Syria, which she proceeded to do as Secretary of State and destroy Libya, where you know the Gulf states, Qatar had a huge stake. Uh, I mean, she's calling someone a useful idiot. She also calls him like a, a Nepo baby or something. I mean, she's talking to Alex Wagner. Wasn't Alex Wagner like, isn't she like the wife of the White House chef under Obama? Like, how'd she get in there? So, I mean, there's so much irony here. Uh, and she talks about Russian media laughing at Tucker Carlson. I, I don't know where she got that from. Yeah, um, I think they, she means that they praise him or in, enjoy what he says. I mean, wouldn't that back up her? theory that he's a useful idiot more than that they laugh at him yeah yeah i mean they were obviously really happy with him doing the interview uh i think because uh, he's a big time name um yeah this is so embarrassing and it's so embarrassing to see i mean whatever you, you like you expect that from hillary clinton but people who describe themselves as journalists taking part in piling on this mocking of someone going to interview the leader of of russia it, it, it's such a strange display like you know, I can well, at least it's not really, strange. It's what we would expect, right? After expect, the Russians right, freak out, and yeah. they their 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 adherence to endless war, constant hostility with Russia, the the liberal perspective on Russia as like the yeah. real controller of the GOP. Like, it makes perfect sense that she would say that. You would expect her to be a little more articulate, though, and point out what some of those lies might be, and she doesn't. Uh, and then attacks Tucker for getting fired, like getting fired from a U.S. corporate owned cable news network is a badge of honor today. She doesn't seem to understand that he was the top rated news host yeah. in the country. And he was fired, by the way, after uh, the Ukrainian government had personal conversations with the Murdochs yeah. and basically encouraged them to take him off the air. And that's why after he was off the air, you had the headlines in, in, in news outlets 
talking about people at the Pentagon and also inside the Republican Party are thrilled that he was gone because they deemed him to be a threat to their agenda, which is a mark of honor for a journalist. You want to be a threat to people in power if you want to do your job seriously. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's to be expected from Hillary Clinton. And uh, it's just interesting to me that people who call themselves journalists take part in that and act smug and act superior uh, when all they do is act as useful idiots for people like Hillary Clinton. What it is too, like with Christian Amanpour, is that they don't, they fear the American public. They don't want foreign policy to be democratized. They don't want the American public to be able to make up their own minds. And so they fear and hate the agency of the American public. And they don't want Putin to be able to sit down for two hours, even if he delivers a potentially boring 30-minute historical filibuster, that they would don't want that. It's unvarnished. They're the gatekeepers. They get to control it. And if Putin sits down in front of them, they're going to deliver a, a version of an enhanced interrogation where Putin is on the defensive the entire time. They'll like pull up pictures of dead people from Bucha or something. They'll, you know, it's like whenever they would speak to Assad, there'd be like a picture of the dusty boy. They'd pull out some stunts. They would never address international relations, the economy, history, because the American public cannot be allowed to make up their own minds. And it's particularly liberals, credentialed liberals, who fear the public having that opportunity. I mean, here's here's more. This, this, these talking points obviously went out throughout any, at any area of the media where the Biden, Clinton, Obama team has some influence. His name is Tucker Carlson, and he is the only American journalist who has been able to interview Putin since the invasion in 2022. Tucker Carlson is not a journalist, not even close. He kind of just walks right into Moscow and presents himself on a silver, silver platter to the Kremlin, doing the Kremlin's job of misinforming, disinforming the American population. His explanation of why he's doing it, that he's a journalist and he needs to inform people, he can call himself whatever he wants. I think uh, his work is demonstrable as not being just about giving people information. He has a point of view and often it's not aligned with the facts. Putin talks to an American friend, the Russian president turning to right-wing conspiracy theorist Tucker Carlson. <laughs> and it comes as Kremlin propagandist Tucker Carlson, a leading voice of the right-wing disinformation campaign is in Moscow. Ironically, he is there in the name of keeping Americans informed, sitting down for an interview with Vladimir Putin. Tucker Carlson is neither a journalist uh, nor a reporter, but he has played one on TV. Tucker Carlson still doesn't have a job. You notice how they never say ex-FBI or F like Frank Figliuzzi. That's the guy who was always brought in to attack Assange or whoever. Or, the, or um, John Brennan. They'll never say ex-CIA. They say national security analyst. Uh, he's in Moscow, house hunting, I hope. But no, actually, Tucker is there to interview Vladimir Putin, which is so overtly ridiculous. Tucker Carlson interviewing Vladimir Putin uh, may not be uh, mean much to you, but for Trump, this is like watching OnlyFans. <laughs> this is insane. I You've seen sharp belief, a Republican Party that is now doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. Donald Trump always did. And somebody that we know, uh, that we used to know, uh, going over, doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. Uh, it was striking again yesterday to see Republicans across the board, and maybe some of them are doing Vladimir Putin's bidding, but really they're doing Donald Trump's bidding, which is Vladimir Putin's bidding. Whose <laughs> 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 bidding is he doing? So, I mean, it's just basically two talking points. Tucker's not a journalist, and uh, he's doing Putin's bidding.
and they call him a Kremlin propagandist. Like he literally works for the Kremlin. I mean, these are the biggest McCarthyites. So, I mean, for two points quickly. I mean, Tucker had a hard time getting that interview. He'd been working for years on getting that interview. And we know, and, and we openly want that interview to happen for the reasons we state. So when Anya Parampil, our partner in what has basically been deemed a crime of interviewing, uh, tried to help Tucker get that interview a few years ago. The NSA intercepted her emails to the deputy foreign minister she had previously interviewed. That's how she knew him as a journalist, uh, Sergei Ryabkov, and leaked the emails of Tucker to the uh, biggest, one of the biggest access journalists in Washington, Jonathan Swan at Axios. And Tucker wasn't able to get that interview. He wasn't able to get that interview anyway. And I assume there were efforts to do the same, to foil the interview. But the fact is Putin wasn't interested in talking to Tucker for years. Um, and uh, why he did this, I can't explain. We could clearly see there were two different perspectives on display there. And Tucker went on for 15 minutes about Evan Gerskovich, the U.S. journalist from the Wall Street Journal who was arrested in Russia while conducting interviews outside a Russian metallurgical facility on Russian weapons production while Russia was engaged in a war in Ukraine. Something that, uh, you know, might be considered dangerous for a Western journalist to do, especially when his country is the key sponsor of the country which is fighting Russia. Um, you, and you never see U.S. journalists ask a U.S. leader like Biden about Julian Assange or Boris Johnson or any Rishi Sunak. You will never see them do that. But Tucker went on for 15 minutes about this Wall Street Journal reporter. So why aren't they crediting him with that? I mean, if that's if they're so into freeing Evan, why don't they just drop their partisan insanity and at least give him credit for that? Yeah, well, that's why it was so stupid uh, or such a strange display to see them trash Tucker Carlson before even watching the interview. It put them in such a silly position where he then goes and does the exact thing they claimed he wouldn't, which is ask, ask Putin critical questions. Uh, in this case, trying to get a U.S. journalist freed. And it put them in such a bad position because they are, they'd already denounced him and said he was just acting as Putin's useful idiot. Yeah. Well, um, that really just I, – I don't think they had much effect on the discussion of the interview because it was still widely discussed, widely covered. And eventually the West is going to have to do a deal because Ukraine is running on fumes. That's what this is coming down to. So I think that's why he did the interview. Is his, Putin gave this interview because of his confidence in the momentum that Russia's military has in Ukraine, and the fact and and the fact that Western economies, Germany's economy, is closing pipe factories. They're closing old legacy factories because of Nord Stream, because of the state of their economy. Uh, Finland was having a, a gas crisis late last year as a result of cutting off gas imports from Russia and joining NATO. Um, it's not looking good for Western Europe. So I think Putin is confident right now. And that was why he sat down with Tucker. And I assume he's confident that Biden will lose 
or be replaced. I mean, if you look at this uh, special counsel investigation, you might theorize that even the Democrats are using it to replace Biden, to push Biden and Kamala out. Uh, because if you looked at the New York Times coverage, it was front page disaster for Biden. Uh, he wasn't actually cleared because he received an even worse verdict, which is that he is not even mentally present. So all of those factors came together for this interview. And I agree with Afshin Ratanzi that Putin really should have brought up Gaza because that is the that is the Achilles heel or the mask off of the rules-based order that is at the heart of the Biden administration's soft power and their, you know, it's sort of their moral justification for the Ukraine war. So I think it's a huge opportunity there. But, you know, that's where I have to wonder, I mean, how much is Putin really concerned with, with Gaza? I know he's denounced Israel. He's criticized their, their conduct. He's called for a Palestinian state. That's all true. But also he does have this alliance with Israel. He does maintain this very friendly posture. At least he has. I mean, maybe that's shifting now in recent months. But before October 7th, I'd say he was pretty friendly with Israel. There's a big Russia, Russian Russia population. UN, Russia's delegation at the UN has been going pretty hard on At Gaza. the UN, yeah. And, and okay. using it just to kind of twist the nail in the to expose the hypocrisy of the US. I mean, they're having a field day with it. Hmm. So, I mean, I think just for that point alone, for that reason alone, as well as Israel's continuous attacks on Syria, although Russia has kind of given Russia lets that happen. Right that's what I'm saying. It must frustrate them. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is like Russia's let those Israeli attacks happen. If it if it really wanted, it could tell Israel not to do that and said that, you know, we'll use our air but they don't. They let well, Israel. That's sort of how they managed to uh prevent escalation over the Iranian presence inside Syria is that they will allow Israel to no, it's it's how they've sort of you know, prevented friction about their own presence at um, Tartus, for example, um, as well as kind of trying to control Syria when there are other factors like the Iranian presence. Um, and, uh, you know, if you were Russia, would you want uh, 1.5 million people who have gone through the Israeli military and participated in one genocide after another back in your country? I don't know. Yeah, well, that's no. I understand. Might be a, I, I, yeah, yeah. Well, want to keep them over there. No, I understand. I, I I understand, but it it has meant that I think Russia has been uh, sort of a partner of Israel sometimes, even though they're on opposing sides of so many conflicts, including uh, in Syria, where you know Israel was on the side of the coalition trying to overthrow the government that Russia was trying to defend. But um, it, it's interesting, and you know. I, I want to make a point about Tucker. You know, I have all my criticisms of him on his views on immigration. I thought his interview with uh, the guy who claimed he was like a, a lover of Barack Obama was was ridiculous. But this this interview to me shows the value of Tucker uh, Carlson too, and that he does do work that other people in media don't. And um, you know, for all my differences with him, when it comes to issues like this, when the issue of the dirty war in Syria which although people want to ignore it and pretend it didn't happen is a really important issue with uh, that's still ongoing because the U.S. military is still occupying Syria with catastrophic effect. Tucker Carlson's coverage of that was better than the entire corporate media and pretty much all progressive media combined. It was, and he deserves credit for that. And, he deserve, and I think he deserves credit for this interview too. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, 
he interviewed him for the same reason that, or, or I think the interview had the effect that I wanted for my interview with Nicolas Maduro, my interview with Daniel Ortega. Uh, these are leaders who are maligned by the West. They reduced their entire country to these leaders. They reduced their mass popular base to these leaders because they can't define an ideological conflict on the same level as the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, cap, the free market versus communism and the Iron Curtain. And in doing so, create a cascading series of political and social catastrophes. And when you look back at, for example, my interviews with Ortega, Maduro, I had two interviews with Ortega. If they, if, if they had been just, they weren't even allowed to be seen as the presidents of their own country by the United States. I mean, the U.S. created this fake puppet clown who's now like in graduate school at Florida International, Juan Guaido. He just looks like some yuppie tourist in, in Florida now, and he was supposed to be the president. And what's happening on the U.S.-Mexico border is in so many ways blowback Absolutely. from that policy of just refusing to recognize Venezuela's government in order to put all of the state assets, including its most valuable foreign asset of Citgo, in the hands of a puppet who is controlled by the CIA and the State Department and basically raping that country of all of its wealth, then what do you think is going to happen? Its people are all going to go north because they're turned into the poor who are barely holding on under sanctions that began under Obama in 2015. Uh, the sanctions in Nicaragua had already begun are being turned into surplus humanity. Then the U.S. comes in and says, oh, we want to um, offer you temporary protective status. Uh, you're all asylum seekers suddenly. We're going to give you two years parole in the U.S. Come on, come on, uh, and, and to screw your government. Nicaragua had been the block on, on undocumented migration to the north. The Nicaraguan public had basically, if they had needed to work, uh, outside of Nicaragua, they went to Costa Rica. Now the U.S. is explicitly inviting them in, and they're debating in Congress, in in the House. It's I think Tim Kaine is a co-sponsor of one of the most draconian sanctions bills on Nicaragua. So they're fueling the crisis, and Nicaragua is also uh, because the relations have collapsed with the U.S. They are allowing migrants from North Africa and all across the African continent who want to work in the U.S. to get out of the airport. Because why would they care about? They're not going to stay in Nicaragua. They're going to go north. So the U.S. has just screwed itself by refusing to even recognize these leaders, understand the position their countries are in, or the value of having real diplomatic relations with them. And it's going to doom Biden. Uh, the immigration crisis is one of the top issues. It's not the top issue that's going to influence the campaign, the election, and cause people to vote for Donald Trump. I don't think Trump is going to solve it, but he, you know, talks the tough talk. I don't think the Republicans want to solve it until or until Trump gets in, they're going to weaponize the crisis against Biden. But this is bipartisan policy. Uh, and it's the same thing with Russia. The U.S. completely screwed itself and Western Europe, especially completely doomed their economies by refusing to recognize that Putin is not going to be toppled they're not going to win some war against them with somebody else's army. Their own armies aren't going to win it for sure. So let this interview uh, lead to many more interviews where, uh, I, I mean, I hope it leads to more interviews. 
I mean, you remember back in er, like early in the Russian invasion, Biden was talking about how the ruble is now rubble. We've crushed Russia's economy. William Burns said, literally, our sanctions will hurt generations of Russians to come. He was proud yeah. of that. Look at Russia now. Their economy is doing pretty well. Putin's popularity is at 80 percent, according to the polls, at least, if we can trust them. Um, so even their stated goals, which are illegitimate to begin with, have been just massive failures. And accordingly, Biden's so desperate to double down and prolong the proxy war in Ukraine that in order to get a $60 billion that he needs to prolong the war, he was willing to basically cave to Republican demands on immigration and accept all the Trump policies that he pretended to oppose back when he was running against Trump. Remember all that shtick from Biden that we care about immigrants and, you know, immigrants are welcome here, families belong together. It was all a scam because Biden just actually accepted immigration proposals that are even, I think, even more extreme than Trump's because uh, he wanted to get his funding for Ukraine, which Republicans ultimately uh, didn't give him anyway. Because they didn't want to give. Well, I think they want to weaponize the crisis. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we can talk about that again as and, and how it relates to or later and how it relates to Israel. I think, you know, we could move on to uh, Columbia University. Should we do that or? Oh, yes. Yes, okay. definitely. This was a big event that happened at Columbia University on Friday, headlined by Hillary Clinton and the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and the New York Times journalist Jeffrey Gettleman, author of the now widely discredited piece, which weaponized sexual violence to baselessly accuse Hamas of weaponizing sexual violence on October 7th. And the gray zone was among those, the small number of voices, along with Mondo Weiss and Electronic Intifada, which pointed out the glaring holes in Jeffrey Gettleman's piece. And that's since been um, newly confirmed by reports that people inside the New York Times were embarrassed by Jeffrey Gettleman's piece. And he's been forced to try to defend his reporting in a follow-up article, which was just him doubling down on his fraud, which we talked about in a recent stream. But none of these uh, serious gaping holes in his so-called reporting have uh, hurt his place among the establishment, which in fact continues to treat him as if he's a serious figure. And that's why he was welcomed on Friday at this event at Columbia. I think it's one of the reasons why he was welcomed. Uh, I also think Jeffrey Gettleman appeared at this event uh, and as uh, part of a possible plan long ago to kind of crown him as a journalistic star. That's obviously been shattered by the New York Times canceling its podcast that was supposed to take his reporting into a new audiovisual level and set the stage for another Pulitzer Prize. That was canceled under internal pressure because of our work. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, but it shows that Gettleman is part of a network. And it's not just a US imperial foreign policy network. There's an Israeli component too. And he was networked into this story. But it didn't work out. The event backfired badly, as we had hoped. There were protests outside and protests inside. Hillary Clinton is the is a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia SIPA, in addition to uh, her description of herself on her Twitter profile as a hair icon, mom, wife, grandma, times three, lawyer, advocate, fan of walks in the woods and standing up for our democracy. She was also installed into this position as a professor. Her class has been described in various reports uh, based on student feedback as extremely boring and uh, not very informative. And her performance here was 
not only poor, but it was one of the few instances in which Hillary Clinton was held accountable for the vast crimes she's presided over. And since, you know, in the past several months, she has been one of the most vocal cheerleaders of the Gaza genocide using the hoax of Hamas mass rape in order to justify it. Here she is. That's my name. That's right. The people of Libya, the people of Iraq, the people of Syria, the people of will now escort you out of the building. Thank you. Uh, can you? Sir. Sorry. The kind of hard work and the work that you will hear from the panelists today, um, I think the way, solve uh, the problem. Here's Jeffrey Gettleman sitting right in front with his like uh, pirate vest on. The kind of hard work and the work that you will hear from the panelists today. Um, I think it's important that we. Okay, all right. We're gonna we're gonna stop. We're gonna stop a minute. And I don't. If you know what, it, it, why don't all of you just interrupt me so that you won't be introduced interrupting our panelists so that we don't have this kind of disruption when we have people who are real experts in this area. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, important to uh, focus on the event we're here. People are free to protest, but they are not free to disrupt events or classes. Uh, and that is going to be the, you know, the uh, standards that we follow here and uh, going forward. You know, I want to show another angle of, of this uh, exchange because the people doing this are really brave. I mean, already on campus at Columbia, you're in an environment where you have students being attacked with chemical agents for speaking up for Palestine. You have an institution, if they're putting Hillary Clinton in that position, then obviously you can tell what the agenda is. So to speak out at in a school in an environment like this is dangerous. But then you have people standing up, confronting one of the world's most powerful people as a war criminal, the people doing this are Muslim students, you know, like women in hijab who are already, you know, uh, vulnerable to attacks and discrimination. And, and, you know, so, well, well, here's an example. Are you not ashamed you're exploiting sexual violence for your own political game? You're not fooling anyone. You've done this before. You've exploited and weaponized sexual violence in Libya, in Libya, to exploit sexual violence in Libya so that you can justify U.S. militarization and instability in Libya. You're doing that again to justify genocide in Gaza. You're doing that to justify genocide in Gaza. If you were truly enraged about sexual violence, you would be talking about the sexual violence in Palestine, the sexual violence that they endure by the IUF daily. You should be enraged. You're not feminist. You're not here and going forward. You're that you're you're no feminist. You're a white supremacist. And then going through her record of weaponizing sexual violence in places like Libya, spreading fake claims of Gaddafi distributing Viagra to justify destroying Libya, uh, calling her out in such a clear way. I mean, it's really it's not easy to do. And I really applaud the person who did that. Yeah. And that's why Bill Ackman wants to basically ban those students and their speech. Yeah. 
getting in the way of this agenda, which has proceeded without much challenge for years. Uh, the only thing more delicious than that would have been Juanita Broderick interrupting her. <laughs> I mean, if she's going to really take a stand against like sexual abuse, then, you know. Get it yeah, I don't, I don't see Juanita uh, waiting in on the Hamas sexual violence claims, no. but because she, she's kind of she's a pretty committed right winger right but, wing, yeah yeah but she did have her experience with bill clinton and she's been speaking out about it and calling out hillary clinton for her her hypocrisy um and then also there was the interruption of linda thomas greenfield yeah and unlike hillary clinton uh u.n ambassador linda thomas greenfield actually seemed to be bothered by being called out for her role in the genocide because she of course in her position has vetoed uh, measures calling for a ceasefire uh, and has um, pushed the fabricated claims about UNRWA, the UN refugee agency, the UN agency for Palestinian refugees. So Linda Thomas Greenfield was also there and and got called out. And uh, should we uh, should we play that clip? Yeah, I thought you had it up. I got it here. Um, yeah. Well, she this got shut down completely. I mean, they basically had to cancel the. They they had to. Uh, this is it. I don't know why there's no volume. Ask your delegates to now please escort you out. We, you are interrupting an academic event, and this is in contrast to the university regulations about time, place, and manner. You are now going to be escorted. Huh? Okay. Okay. So what I'd like to talk to you uh, about today, uh, to start with, I visited uh, five months ago a refugee camp in Adre Chad, not just over the border from Sudan. And I heard from so many people who have said to me- This is yet again a violation of the university rules of conduct. You are interrupting an academic proceeding. It is time for you to exit the space. This is a violation of the university rules of conduct. This is an academic proceeding and you need to exit the space. She's saying walk out of the event. I mean briefly and reconvene in a moment. We embrace freedom of expression at Columbia University. This is a violation of the university rules of conduct as it's a disruption <laughs> of an academic proceeding. Thank you for making your way out of the event space. And we exit the event space. You are in violation of the university rules of conduct. The event will proceed momentarily. And by the way, I mean, you can see in the upper right-hand corner, it's co-sponsored by the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. I mean, what an ironic, I mean, it's mostly women protesting this. Yes. It's mostly women and children being slaughtered in Gaza under the watch of Linda Thomas Greenfield. Yeah. Hillary Clinton's buddies and peace. I mean, give me, I mean, that, that's just so ironic. So they shut, they shut it down. They live, 
they shut that event down. Huge props to those protesters, um, a diverse group of protesters. And to those outside, um, yeah, I really, really appreciate the protesters outside. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to take our share of credit. This is a photo taken by our colleague, Jeremy Lafredo, outside the event. And people are taking inspiration from the factual investigative reporting we've been doing about October 7th and its aftermath. Um, and so I, I, I'm really proud that we were able to influence that protest and ruin Hillary and Linda Thomas Greenfield's day. I mean, the only regret I have is that they walked out before Jeffrey Gettleman went on stage because <laughs> he was able to do his completely pompous shtick without any interruption. Well, but he kind of hung himself by his own rope, though. Yeah. You know, so uh, maybe that's okay that he didn't face protest because he said some really damning things. Uh, but before we get into him, I just want to say about that sign and the uh, the pro that that demonstrator giving us credit. I especially appreciate that because there are some colleagues of ours in independent media who are who have gone out of their way to ignore the reporting we did to expose, for example, the New York Times Jeffrey Gettleman, like The Intercept has gone out of their way to ignore the fact that yeah. we were on this story first um, when they were, <laughs> by the way, parroting it uh, and saying with democracy now. So I appreciate that there are people out there who uh, don't accept that journalism is like a schoolyard where some people have cooties and you can't go near them and you can't acknowledge them when they do the work first. It's, it's, yeah, it's I, mean, it's, I mean, you're hard on the intercept. We've both been hard on them because they pushed the, they pushed the Syria dirty war. They pushed regime change in Nicaragua they pushed like all kinds of like they pushed leaks, probably like Western intelligence leaks to de um, denigrate Iran, portray Iran as like this malign force. And, you know, they've just been pretty pathetic on. And now they're they're going hard in the paint for Palestine. They're fundraising off of it. And, uh, you know, they, they're basically now that it's safe, they're now starting to call out a lot of the October 7th deceptions as though they're the first ones to do it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not crediting Mondo Weiss or EI either, Intifada, electronic Intifada yeah. either. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's just, that's just whack. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Gettleman, Jeffrey Gettleman, lead author of the Screams Without Words report in the New York Times that we decimated, um, clinically and methodically showing that his sources had either outright lied or had changed their stories multiple times or that their own family members had called out the New York Times for misrepresenting their loved one's deaths. Uh, Jeffrey Gettleman walks into this room as a discredited journalist, still welcomed by fellow elites because of his usefulness. He is actually the definition of a useful idiot, um, but Absolutely. I don't know if he's an idiot. He's sort of like, I mean, we consider him to be maybe an idiot as a journalist, but like he knows what he's doing. He believes in it. He's not like accidentally being used. And, uh, you know, look at him. Here he is. I mean, first of all, before we play this, seated to his right is Sheryl Sandberg. The, <laughs> I think she's a billionaire. She's oh, a yeah. neoliberal Fem, self-styled feminist oligarch who helped uh, Mark Zuckerberg build Facebook into a global 
data mining behemoth and also worked with him on this Zuck Bucks initiative to help privatize New Jersey public schools and destroy the public school system of New Jersey. She is the avatar of lean in feminism that women can be great moms and also work 25 hours a day. And uh, so here she is with Jeffrey Gettleman, and she's also an ardent Zionist who led the Israeli government's push alongside Hillary Clinton at the United Nations to demand that the world support Israel in its genocide in Gaza because of unproven claims of Hamas mass rape on October 7th. She's actually doing a documentary about it. So here she is with Jeffrey Gettleman, and Gettleman makes some very revealing comments, not only about his report on supposed Hamas mass rape, but on journalism itself. He interviewed almost 200 people over the course of two months. And what we found, I, I don't want to even use the word evidence, because evidence is almost like a legal term that suggests you're trying to, to prove an allegation or prove a case in court. That's, that's not my role. Um, we all have our roles, and, and my role is to, is to document, is to present information, is to give people a voice. And we found information along the entire chain of violence, so of, of sexual violence. So let's play that one more time in case anyone missed. Suggests you're trying to evidence because evidence is almost like I don't want to even use the word evidence because evidence is almost like a legal term that suggests you're trying to to prove an allegation or prove a case in court. That's that's not my role. Um, we all have our roles, and and my role is to is to document, is to present information, is to give people a voice. And so his role is not to present evidence. It's basically what he's saying is information and evidence are two different things. And information could basically just be testimonies or stories. So his job is really uh, to shape the narrative of information, but not to provide evidence. And if there is no evidence, he should still declare matter-of-factly that he has proven and stated his case. Because if you actually look at the article, he's stating unequivocally that Hamas engaged in mass sexual violence on October 7th. So this is just, I've never heard a journalist say anything like that before. He's admitting he's a propagandist and yeah, he's pretending as if he just put some, some claims out there and letting the audience decide, no, the headline of your article was screams without words, how Hamas weaponized sexual violence on October 7th, a Times investigation uncovered new details showing a pattern of rape, mutilation, and extreme brutality against women in the attacks on Israel. So now he's trying to say, oh, I wasn't trying to put out a narrative. I was trying to just put some information out there. No, you put out a specific narrative and you pretended as if you, you had evidence. And now you're walking away from that because you've been shown to be a fraud because we've shown extensively. You can read our article that we wrote about how all the claims of his witness, so-called witnesses, do not add up. He's relying on people who've already been caught lying, like the volunteer from Zaka. Um, he's relying on claims with zero evidence whatsoever. And that's why, Max, you aptly titled the article uh, Screams Without Evidence, um, because he has not, And he's admitting that here now in front of an audience. But that's not his role. His role is to embody the stereotype of a journalist, like a foreign correspondent. <laughs> so foreign correspondents always have to wear a vest. And yes. when they're in the field, their vest is canvas and tan and has lots of pockets. 
because they need to like reach into it to get their film. Like we still use film. If we get the fixtures of Sebrenich out, but the West will bomb tomorrow and it'll save the it'll save the innocence and you know he's got uh pens and like power bar, like energy bars in the other pockets and now he's uh is speaking at a formal event so he has a vest on uh but it's a formal kind of um pirate vest and you could do a really funny and he opens his shirt like three pockets open oh yeah yeah you could do a really funny compilation of all the journalists who've donned vests over the years to make themselves look credible. It really is the uniform of a journalist, like a foreign journalist trying to look serious. I know some of them personally, and it was always <laughs> it's really, it's really embarrassing. I wonder how much that vest cost. <laughs> I mean, the the only excuse you could have for wearing that vest is if you're like a rock and roll survivor from the seventies. Like you used to be in crazy horse with Neil Young or something <laughs> or like you like were, you know, one of the backup musicians that couldn't be seen in the last waltz with right. Robbie Robertson, you know, you got it at John Vervatos on Bowery. Like that's your only excuse. But if you're a journalist, <laughs> you're clearly covering up something, which is that you just don't have evidence. Yeah. I mean, this is like a Seinfeld outfit. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so so man yeah i mean this was i'm I so glad this event happened it was really revealing and you know this the the youth aren't buying it young people aren't buying this uh even just general biden voters aren't buying it uh their protests right now outside tony blinken's house um there's a new poll out showing that uh 50% of Biden voters believe Israel's committing genocide. This is on MSNBC. Wow. Wow. 50, I mean, it's basic. it's, it's, it's basically, it's almost a plurality. That's insane. And so, given, given how hard networks like MSNBC have worked to convince people of otherwise, that's an incredible stat. Imagine if media, if people actually got accurate coverage in, from the media, that number would be even higher. So that's, that's an amazing statistic. Exactly. I mean, consider how propagandized people have been, including from uh, MSNBC. This is this is you know Chris Hayes. I know Chris Hayes probably wants a ceasefire. I think he's called for a ceasefire. But after October seventh, he had Cory Booker on to compare what Israel went through on October seventh to the plight of Black Americans from oh. slavery through the Civil Rights Movement, and he compared Hamas to the Ku Klux Klan. So, I mean, yeah. Chris Hayes has his own responsibility for this catastrophe along yeah. with the other. And by the way, yes. Yeah, so Chris, is, I'm sure, yes, he has called for a ceasefire. But the problem is he's also in this crowd of people who say they want a ceasefire while also simultaneously endorsing the goal of removing Hamas from Gaza, which yeah. means you actually functionally you actually don't endorse a ceasefire because the only way to remove Hamas from Gaza is through force, is through aggression. Uh, and so they have this classic liberal middle ground, self-contradictory, position because they don't want to actually fully stand behind the uh, principled position uh, because that would they, they can't handle being called apologists for Hamas or, or like whatever the bad guy of the day is. Yeah. Bernie Sanders too. That's that's the Bernie line. And it, yeah. Bernie also was calling for a humanitarian pause before he finally called for a ceasefire. So it's kind of like they – went into a meeting and said, how many dead kids is enough before we call for a ceasefire? Okay, let's let's put the number at 10,000 
And then we're going to say enough. I think the Finnish, the foreign minister of Finland said uh, that, you know, they've reached their limit. That was like at what, 20,000 deaths. Now the yeah. number is 28,500, something like 62,000 people injured and certainly thousands more are missing. Uh, this has become such a political problem for Biden that in a very unusual move, the Biden administration dispatched John Finer, who is an advisor to, he's the deputy national security advisor to meet with Arab American leaders in Michigan. So they're not sending someone from their domestic team. They're sending someone, a national security official. Samantha Power too was part of this delegation as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, yeah. I'm sure she conveys a lot of credibility as she covers up the death of a USAID contractor in Gaza. That's something Samantha Power actually did. Um, but here, these are such revealing comments. I mean, they're going there and they're making it worse. Um, first, you know, he said that he doesn't have any confidence that Israel's government was willing to take meaningful steps toward Palestinian statehood. Who cares? You're not going to give them a state anyway. Um, but here's what Finer's, this, this is like the key passage. John Finer, <laughs> I love how the New York Times frames it offered some of the administration's clearest expressions of regret for what he called, quote unquote, missteps it had made from the beginning of the violence, and he pledged that it would do better. We are well aware that we have made missteps in the course of responding to this crisis since October 7th. Um, and, you know, the recording was shared by a participant. Okay, so the New York Times calls it a clear expression of regret. That doesn't sound like a clear expression of regret to me. It sounds like Barack Obama. It's not even as regretful as Barack Obama saying, sure, we tortured some folks. He's saying like, we made some missteps like in the rhetoric we might've used. But I mean, you either call, you either impose a ceasefire using the total leverage you have over Israel, which you control, or you don't. Exactly. There's no way to manage it otherwise. Like, well, we're gonna get them to just hit uh, certain ambulances. Exactly. Uh, here's another quote from John Finer at this meeting. We have left a very damaging impression based on what has been a wholly inadequate public accounting for how much the president, the administration, and the country values the lives of Palestinians. And that began, frankly, pretty early in the conflict. So the problem, according to him, is not that Biden is helping to exterminate Palestinian lives, right? Yeah. The problem is that the Biden administration has not done a good enough job to show people that they privately really care about Palestinian lives. And that's the problem. So it's all about PR management. We didn't go to do a good enough job to convey to you how much we care about Palestinian lives, even though, by the way, we're doing everything we can to exterminate them. And he thinks that saying this to a group of people is good. Like, obviously, like they, they sit down and they plot their messaging and they think, OK, what can we say? without changing our policy of genocide. And this is the best that they come up with. But do they really think this is going to convince a single person? It's such disingenuous rhetoric. Uh, and people are sick of it. And they see through it. Um, and then there's another part where basically he acknowledges that some Israeli officials compared residents of Gaza to animals. <laughs> but the Times says uh, the Biden administration didn't do anything about this because they were trying to work with the Israeli government and Finer explained, quote, out of a desire to sort of focus on solving the problem and not engaging in a rhetorical back and forth with people who in many ways, I think we all find somewhat abhorrent. We did not sufficiently indicate that we totally rejected and disagreed 
with these sorts of sentiments. So he's saying that even as the government you're arming and giving weapon, giving weapons to and giving cover to was talking about exterminating the people of Gaza, comparing them to animals, you didn't want to say anything about it because you were trying to work with them and uh, uh, focus on solving the problem. And what problem are you trying to solve? The problem you're trying to solve is exactly the same problem that Israel wanted to solve, which is the problem that Palestinians are alive. And you wanted to solve the problem by helping to murder them. And yeah, finer- I mean, they refused. They explicitly refused to condemn this rhetoric. Uh, on October tenth, I gave them the opportunity to do so during this conflict. Go ahead. Yeah, in, in March, you uh, condemned Israel's finance minister Bezalel Smotrich for calling for wiping the Palestinian village of Huara off the map. Uh, this week, we've heard the defense minister of Israel, Yoav Gallant declare that he's fighting human animals in Gaza as Israel cuts off the gas, the water, and the electricity. We've heard Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, declare uh, that all hiding places will be turned to rubble in a besieged coastal enclave where there are one million children. We've heard Ariel Kalner, who is a member of Knesset from the ruling Likud party, call for a Nakba 2.0, which is essentially a call for genocide and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians as 850 are dead in Gaza. So what do you think so of that rhetoric let, in light of your let, previous let, condemnation? Let me say a few things about that. Number one, um, we expect, as we said, that Israel will conduct its operations in accordance with international law. Number two, there are going to be a number of statements made uh, over the course of this conflict. And when we have disagreements with them, we will um, make those known privately. Number three, though, so let me just let me just let me just speak to this. Number three, some of the questions I'm getting today do seem to ignore the fact that Israel just had hundreds of its citizens killed, people who were taken hostage and pretend that Israel shouldn't be able to conduct any well, kind of, uh, let me just say, because shouldn't, to, can you, shouldn't, you just have, shouldn't, let me just, let me just, let me, Palestinian children let me, have been killed? Do you let me, acknowledge that? Will let you even me, acknowledge that? Let me finish. Maybe Palestinian children uh, you, killed You know this what, week? Uh, again, Babies, let me, do you, you acknowledge a, that? You asked, you asked a question, I will answer the question. Okay, that's my then, question. So I, I'm gonna start by answering the previous question that was interrupted. I will say some of the questions seem to pretend that Israel should not be able to conduct operations to defend itself and hold accountable the terrorists who killed civilians. That is not Israel's policy. That is not our policy. It is something that we would vehemently disagree with. Israel has the right to secure its country the way any country does. It has the right to defend itself against terrorism. It has the right to hold terrorists accountable. Uh, and I will say, uh, ultimately, the, the Hamas terrorists who launched these operations. There is no one who has more disregard for Palestinian civilian life than those terrorists. Because those terrorists, let me finish, let me finish. Those terrorists launched this activity. Those terrorists, I, I, again, we have a lot of new, we seem to have a lot of new people. Those terrorists launched this activity knowing that there would be retaliation, knowing that Israel would have to defend itself as any country would did, knowing that it would lead to. Oh yeah, that was, that was what they said on October 10th. I gave them the opportunity to condemn the genocidal intent. Israel was saying, we are going to commit genocide at the highest level. I gave them the opportunity to say, we condemn genocide. They could have, you know, I mean, if you want to be a sleazebag like that, then at least be an effective sleazebag and say, we condemn the genocidal rhetoric, but Israel has a right to defend itself. But they wouldn't even do that. They said, we're going to condemn it privately or we will take issue privately if we have a problem with it. 
but Israel has the right to defend itself. And it's all Hamas's fault for everything as if they're not occupied. So that's what they did. And now 27,000 dead later, 13,000 children dead later. I said 85 children have been killed, including babies. Do you condemn that? They wouldn't condemn it. Now they're saying we made some missteps along the way and they still won't push Israel. Blinken is in the region. He's right there right now. What is he doing? He's letting them march into Rafah, where there are something like 1.5 million people in one area of southern Gaza where they were pushed, and Israel wants to go in there and carry out an unprecedented slaughter. And what is Blinken doing? You know, and you've pointed this out on Twitter, Blinken's getting humiliated because he wanted to go do a photo op yeah. at the border uh, between Israel and Gaza to show that aid is getting in. But the problem he faced is that Israeli protesters are doing a blockade of the minimal amounts of aid that are getting in. And Israel refused to remove them. So Blinken had to cancel his little photo op. So Blinken is getting humiliated that Israel won't even let him do his photo op opportunities to pretend as if aid is getting into Gaza because they're so fanatically committed to blockading Gaza that they won't remove their protesters who are preventing token amounts of aid from getting in. Uh, it's so yeah, it's, humiliating. Yeah. So this is, you know, Haaretz Blinken canceled a planned visit to the Karim Shalom crossing point you know, uh, with Gaza after Israel could not promise that aid would pass through without disruptions from right-wing protests while he was there. And so this is what the protests look like. And I want everyone to hear this. I want you to hear the soundtrack. I want you to understand what's going on. Such and, uh, an insane country. Just absolutely insane. As Finkelstein says, there it's a satanic state. Um, the SS. The <laughs> SS, yes. Yes. It also stands for Sikh Society. Um, and, you know, these are mostly settlers, but they are claiming that they were survivors of the Nova Electronic Music Festival or family members of those who were killed there. And that's why they're playing trance music. Um, that's And so they're playing it to basically starve to death hundreds of thousands of civilians. They're effectively preventing trucks from going in. They're doing an effective job. Why? Because the Israeli police, first of all, are a part of this and are not stopping them in any way. There are no cops there. Haaretz reported that one cop was seen on the scene. I mean, you look at, uh, just look at, like, I, I have been to the protests that Palestinians waged against walls being built through their villages, like Nalin or Berlin, and you, the, the, the military immediately shows up, and there's so much tear gas in the air you can't breathe. There's no tear gas there at all. Yeah. For these, yeah. not protesters, these are... Jewish terrorists, uh, and they are a proxy of the terror state of Israel. They are part of the state. They're part of the governing coalition, and they prevented Tony Blinken from having a little propaganda visit where he was going to talk about how he's giving Gaza 
piece of bread with his left hand, pieces of bread, and he's giving Israel F-16s and F-35s with the other hand. And Blinken couldn't even do that. And Blinken's going to run, run away with his tail between his legs. You know, the Biden administration, they say they've been waiting for their sweet spot where they can get a ceasefire. Well, this is it. This would be it if you had any concern for human life. Uh, even the British foreign minister, David Cameron, has warned that we will see unbelievable atrocities in Rafah if Israel goes in. But the Biden administration's just letting them humiliate their top diplomat and letting them go in. I, I think I saw Dan Cohen make this point that if those people, those Israelis were blocking weapon shipments, would the Israeli government let that blockade stand? Of course not. They'd clear those people out in a second. But because they're blockading token amounts of humanitarian goods for Gaza, it's allowed to be like a, a party, you know? Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, Blinken is out there doing photo ops about how, you know, we need to deliver aid into Gaza, um, which of course he's only doing to cover up the fact he's delivering weapons to Israel to kill people in Gaza, but he can't even get that. He can't even get his token amounts of aid to make himself look as, uh, as if he cares. Um, because Israel is just that fanatic. They don't they don't care. They don't care about his photo ops. And and on the same day, um Haaretz runs this piece. These are the Jewish mega donors helping fund Biden's re-election campaign. Joe Biden enjoys a deep groundswell of support from Jewish Democratic benefactors with giants in the worlds of Hollywood, Silicon Valley, and Wall Street, making up a significant portion of the US president's fundraising as he begins his re-election bid in earnest. And you know these aren't just Jewish mega donors. Some of them are um, wealthy progressives, but the vast majority, as explained in this report in Haaretz, the vast majority are pro-Israel donors who donate not on the basis of their Jewishness per se, but on the basis of their Zionism. Like Haim Saban, who is who has donated, he may be the top donor, top individual donor to Biden, as he was to Obama and Bill Clinton. And Haim Saban has said, I'm a one-issue guy, and my issue is Israel. We also have Seth Klarman, um, who's actually more like a Bush Republican, but he's supporting Biden against Trump. He owns the Times of Israel. He became a huge Zionist later in life and supports major Zionist org organizations, Israel lobby organizations. Um, the Bronfman family, which helped start Birthright Israel, is donating heavily to Biden. Um, and older Jewish Americans who tend to support Israel more than younger Jewish Americans or younger Americans in general are holding steady. Like their poll numbers, for, their support for Biden has remained steady. They're one of his, they're one of the most supportive demographics of Biden. So when we talk about Biden's loss of support in Michigan, the fact that he might lose this key swing state, we talk about the numbers 50% of 2020 Biden voters saying that Israel's committing genocide, telling pollsters that, or the surge that Jill, Jill Stein is showing in the polls, all of these negative indicators for Biden among his own base. It doesn't matter because this is who Biden answers to, just like nearly every American presidential candidate, they're responding to the, they're going to listen to the donor class first. And that's why we cannot expect anything from Biden or Trump on this issue. Um, and again, I don't think it's it's Jews per se. I think if you put the issue to 
younger Jews, they're going to have a very different opinion. Just a few guys from the billionaire class. Yeah. And uh, since we're talking about the role of Israel in U.S. institutions, I forgot to mention this before. But earlier when we were playing that clip of Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah, we missed this. Being being protested at Columbia uh, by these brave students. We saw someone coming in to kick the students out. And uh, the person who did that was the dean of Columbia's uh, SIPA. It, it's school for basically like foreign service studies, like for, for, for global politics. Her name is Karen Yarhi Milo, uh, who happens to be, I just learned this yesterday, a former Israeli intelligence officer. So the head of Columbia's SIPA school, where Hillary Clinton is putting on propaganda events like this, is a literal former Israeli intelligence <laughs> official. Um it's just like the um, the deep penetration uh, of, of of the Israeli government in U.S. institutions, whether it's you know the influence over Congress or in our universities, it's so it's it's unbelievable to the point where you have a former Israeli intelligence official leading like the preeminent school or one of the uh, preeminent schools for like you know students wanting to have a career in diplomacy and foreign service. And she's her first name is Karen. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She um was kicking the students out and they send this one to administrative detention and uh, send this one to the secret 8200 facility. I mean it really felt it had that vibe. And so I mean I I don't know why I didn't look up her background but well I think she she you know she had you know her her accent to me when I first heard it did not sound Israeli it sounded more European I think yeah. she so she hides it well but yeah no it's in you know in the article that I cited there she talks about how that experience as an Israeli intelligence officer was like the most important of her pro- professional career it gave her all the inf- all the tools she needed to succeed you know so it was, it was obviously very formative and certainly she's bringing that experience now to her new position at Columbia yeah, so great. They have a an Israeli terrorist who's the dean of uh, <laughs> Columbia's international school. That's great. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we should rename it like the Menachem Begin School of uh, like the Stern Gang School. Now here's here's something that this uh, Karen Israeli Karen did, which I think is so revealing of what our elites want us to do. It's like at the Grammys where it all you know the one message on Israel Palestine. That was the official message from the stage, not the Annie Lennox message was, uh, you know, Israeli and Palestinian musicians should play together and just make music. Um, but uh, when in, in students staged a solidarity walkout, this is Mondo Weiss, to support the Columbia students who'd been doxxed for speaking out against the genocide by pro-Israel elements um, and demanded that the university do something. The dean, Karen Yari Milo, came to address the students. And the, I don't know how many of them knew that an Israeli terrorist was addressing them. Um, <laughs> and she said, as part of her response to the threats to our safety, she said, we need to talk to each other, listen to each other, be there for each other, and hug each other. So basically her response is to just hug each other. Uh, and, and, as, and, and you know, wh- where does she stand? I mean, let's just hug each other while her, the army she served in is carrying out this fascistic slaughter of a besieged oh, occupied people. That's so sick. It's so sick. Uh, it's so sick. And, and what happened since then? The students who are being targeted at Columbia, the Palestinian students, 
got sprayed with a skunk-like mixture, the kind which Israeli soldiers blast into Palestinian homes and at protesters in the occupied West Bank, by two Israeli soldiers, including one who had served in the Gaza genocide. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, so basically, they're just like creating this haven for Israeli terror at, in Morningside Heights at Columbia. Why you shouldn't... I, they, there should, why do schools allow people who participated in war crimes to be on their campus? They're clearly dangerous. Well, I really just salute all those students who are standing up to this under really difficult circumstances. Um, and since we're talking about you know how all this is impacting the Biden campaign and the chances for re-election, amazingly, Kamala Harris and all of her genius uh, in the aftermath of Joe Biden being called out by a special counsel for being in serious cognitive decline uh, and mentally deficient, Kamala Harris decided to defend Joe Biden in a really indignant way uh, by pointing to his handling uh, of the whole crisis since October 7th. So basically saying that his support of the genocide is a reason to believe that he's a competent president. October 7th. Oh, God. Israel experienced a horrific attack. And I will tell you, we got the calls, the president and myself, in the hours after that occurred. It was an intense moment for the commander in chief of the United States of America. And I was in almost every meeting with the president. Wow, you're the vice president. Countless hours with the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the heads of our intelligence community, and the- she, She's able to name the participants in a meeting. We're supposed to be impressed by that, like as if this speaks to Joe Biden's brain not turning to mush because other important people were there. Look at that, we like that freeze frame. That is such a <laughs> contrived, fake, serious face. That's almost as contrived as Jeffrey Gettleman's look. <laughs> I was there. I was in the room. President was in front of and on top of it all, asking questions and requiring that America's military and intelligence community and diplomatic community would figure out and know how many people were dead, how many are Americans. How many hostages? Is the situation stable? He how many hostages did Israel kill? Uh, and how many are they still killing? Which they actually still don't even know. How many Americans, uh, meaning like, how many Americans were serving in their military instead of ours? <laughs> was in front of it all, coordinating and directing. That's leaders. no wonder. No wonder we effed up so bad. He was directing. Exactly. And submit this to the ICJ. Turn on the record player. Pick up the phone and uh, get Francois Mitterrand on the phone, the German prime minister. All right. Well, I mean, this goes on. I don't know if we have to listen to more of this. but uh, uh, Let's do a little more. It's just really entertaining. It's, it's very funny. It's very funny. Who are in charge of America's national security, not to mention our allies around the globe. For days and up until now, months so the way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized 
could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated, gratuitous. And so I will say that when it comes to the role and responsibility of a prosecutor in a situation like that, we should expect that there would be a higher level of integrity than what we saw. Thank you. Thank you for the question. So she's Biden was on top of and in front of the situation. Was she on top of and in front of Biden? Or I mean, it's like these are expressions I never really hear. Um, you rarely hear a vice president having to, being put in see a vice president put in that position. And what they obviously were seeking was to find a crisis situation and get her to illustrate how Biden managed it. I mean, I think, you know, they could have talked about Biden shepherding through a popular policy or defending unions, but they found a pop, but they, but they had to find a crisis situation and it was October 7th. And I think that if she hadn't overacted so badly, uh, it wouldn't have become an even bigger farce than this has already become. Obviously, they also chose October 7th because they wanted to highlight how Biden cleared the way for Israel to commit genocide because so many of his billionaire donors are major supporters of that. So they're not going to talk about him defending unions or doing something to show how in in touch he is as a seasoned person who comes from Scranton and has seen this country through so many trials and tribulations to to sense the heartbeat of America. I mean, they're not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, I mean, that was such a disastrous display. And I think it's only going to worsen the crisis for Kamala and Biden. Um, I think by, at the end, by, by the end, it's going to be just Bernie, AOC, and Seth MacFarlane voting for them. And Bill McKibben, and Bill uh, who, McKibben just came, yeah. who just came out and endorsed Joe Biden with Cause yeah, I mean, cause he's getting all the like kickbacks through all the like green energy scams that Biden's subsidizing, the Biden administration subsidizing. Not that like Gavin Newsom wouldn't do that also. So I don't know why he felt the need to do that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still think it's an open question as to whether Biden runs again and wouldn't yeah. he leave office at age 86? Yeah, he would, he would, or 85. No, no, yeah, eighty-six. I think, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just not physically possible to be to attend to the duties of the presidency at that age. I wouldn't. Well, some it. people could do it. I mean, you know, I know one eighty-six-year-old who's who would, you know, Cy Hirsch. I'd, I'd have him president any day, but certainly <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden in I his know, condition. Cy's like a gadfly who, you know, he would just yell at everyone the whole time. And yeah, like, but yeah. you know, hey, I take it. But you know, but Biden, absolutely not. I mean, you know, uh, you saw in his news conference the other night, he called CC the president of, Me- of Mexico. Uh, he's a brown guy. <laughs> I got the hair on my legs just standing up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just I just don't get it. Uh, who's in charge? Well, it's definitely not Kamala. It's not Biden. And the fact that she was in the meeting is also troubling to me. That she was in that meeting. She's one of the least popular vice presidents in history. Um, And Biden is one of the least popular presidents at this point in uh, first term. 
Bill Clinton had suffered some uh, a major decline in his poll numbers in his first two years. He had like a terrible first two years, but he recovered. Uh, Barack Obama held above around 50%. Donald Trump remained in the high 40s despite being under a sustained, unprecedented media campaign to paint him as an agent of Russia, something I've never seen happen to a president in my lifetime. And Biden is, I think he's in the low 30s. He's in He's in George W. Bush second term territory yep. as Bush wallowed in the quagmire of Iraq. Yep. Anyway, um, where does what should we do now? Um, should we? I think uh, we should. I, I think we should wrap it up. All right. Well, let's wrap up. Uh, just. Not on a high note, but I just want to mention, I think in the context of this whole conversation, we've talked about how the Israel lobby is exploiting women and girls and these mostly these discredited allegations of sexual assault on October 7th. They're trotting out, uh, you know, and, and they're trotting out October 7th to defend Biden's mental competence. Um, it's important to not lose sight of what's happening in Gaza. Um, earlier today, our time, the body of Hind Rajab was found um, along with uh, rescue crew members from the Palestinian Red Crescent, Yusuf Zeno and Ahmed Al-Madhun, uh, dead. She was found dead with her entire family. They were killed in an Israeli, I believe in an airstrike she was alive and was calling for help from the ambulance crew and Israel killed the entire, the ambulance crew and killed her. Um, and this is what Israel has been doing day after day after day for over 120 days with the full support of the Biden administration. And I 100% blame Kamala and Joe Biden and Tony Blinken for this. And I blame all the cheerleaders who are no longer in public life like Hillary Clinton for the killing of Hind Rajab. And I will remember in November. It doesn't matter at this point. It's too late. You, it's just too late. You can't recover from this. And so I just wanted to say that before we go. Let me show this. This is how uh, the corporate establishment media reported the murder of Hind by Israel. Just everyone completely erasing Israel's responsibility. You know, as if like uh, this was just all in some accident. Missing six-year-old and rescue team found dead in Gaza, a group says. Like mm-hmm. no acknowledgement that Israel murdered them. Um, this is from CNN. Five-year-old Palestinian girl found dead after being trapped in a car with dead relatives. And Professor Mohammed Morandi, he pointed out like how was this girl like, like what happened to her? Was she in a snow in a snowstorm? Like, what was she like? What led her to die and be trapped? Um, the Washington Post: The body of Hind Rajab, the six-year-old missing for twelve days since losing touch with rescue workers, desperately trying to save her after the family car was fired on in Gaza City, has been found. The Palestine Red Crescent Society said Saturday. Again, no mention of Israel killing her. Hind Rajab, six, found dead in Gaza days after phone calls for help. So, I mean, this is complicity 
as well right here, the media whitewashing Israel's role. And this was put together by my friend Asil Rod, who I recommend people follow. Um, I'll post a link to her Twitter in the in, in the chat. But um, yeah, that's how it gets reported. Yeah. Well, she was killed by Israel. And uh, our friend Rifat Alarir said before he was killed by Israel that he insisted that if that happened, that everyone explain clearly and state unequivocally that he was killed by Israel. He didn't die. These are not just people just dying. They don't up and die in Gaza. So, yeah, the media is discredited. All our institutions are discrediting themselves. Columbia University discrediting itself, implicating itself in genocide with that event. Our our president has discredited himself among his own base. Um, but we're, we're, we're here thanks to you. Uh, we're thanks to the, to our viewers and that's who we're accountable to our audience. So uh, thank you all for, for watching, listening, uh, for subscribing on YouTube and for liking this stream uh, and supporting us however you choose to. Anything you want to add, Aaron? Thanks, everybody, for watching. Like the stream uh, and share it. And, yeah, we'll see you next time. All right. Great job, Aaron. And uh, see you next week. Peace, everybody. Peace.